From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Are You Not Entertained? Joining me, as always, to hopefully entertain you are my dear friends and colleagues, Roger Mitchell and Giles Morgan. Roger, are you there, mate? Come in. I am. I am. I'm here. I'm ready to go. Uh, this is going to be uh, a great, great episode, and it's great to be with the, uh, the team again. Are you, now, are you officially under lock and key in Como now? Yeah, yeah. Can't go out the house. Can't you can't go, go out the house. house. Excellent. It's safe to go to Como again for the rest of us. Uh, Giles, <laughs> where are you? Well, it's funny. I'm not. I mean, we're, there's lockdown in London, but because of our guest, who is a triathlete, I've uh, put myself in lycra. So that's a good reason not to go out because I'll be scaring the good burgers of Wandsworth, London. It's also a very good reason to do this via Skype audio and not Zoom video. But I guess we've, <laughs> we've that, that ship has sailed, unfortunately. So. Um, it's just a, it's a mental image for you both, and I do apologize. I think you might have just come loose at the side there, Giles. Just uh, <laughs> pop that back in, would you? That's a good lad. So, g- gentlemen, um, we have a guest joining us today uh, for what I'm sure will be a fascinating conversation. Um, Giles, why don't you let the audience know who we are about to talk to? Absolutely. Our guest this week is a gentleman uh, called Sam Renouf, who is the CEO of PTO, which is the Professional Triathletes Organisation, which was only founded um, at the start of 2020, which I guess, as it turned out, is quite a challenging time to launch any new sports sports venture. Um, The major funding has come from Crankstart um, Investments, which is actually the investment foundation of Sir Michael Moritz, who is um, one of the wealthiest men um, to come from my country of Wales, um, which was and been part of the Sequoia um, Venture Capital, probably the most famous venture capital group in the world. And with that money, PTO is set out to support and protect the interests of the world's top triathletes, sort of similar, if you like, to what we're familiar with, the ATP in tennis or with the PGA in in, in golf. And with that, um, the development of a really exciting new calendar to try and put, put some order into what is quite an anarchic world, world rankings, and really exciting the equivalent of a triathlon um a sort of rider cup which is called the collins cup so i think probably roger in particular but i think all of us we've probably got a million questions we want to ask him particularly about setting anything up right now so let's not waste any more time and welcome him to the big interview thank you it's great to be here um big fan of the podcast as you know um so it's it's uh it's strange as i just said before to actually see your faces um as we talk through this it's a lot well, of fun. lovely to see your beautiful face sir, nice to see you, sam. <laughs> thank you so sam as we always start our, our big interview we we like to ask a, a question that comes from our sponsor our partner pumpjack data works which is more a question about you actually and everybody who works in the sports industry has a has a passion for sport in one way or the other what's yours Wow, what a question. Where do you start? Um, I mean, sport has been my life for as long as I can remember. So it's hard to sort of almost separate the passion from from every day. And I actually feel very fortunate that 
incredibly fortunate that I get to make it my living. So I don't know if, if that's an answer other than if you, uh, the old adage that um, those who manage to make work and fun the same thing never work a day in their life or whatever that phrase is, uh, I would, that sums it up for me. Well, you went to, to Loughborough University, which for our international um, audience, they may or may not know, it's one of the UK's great sporting universities. Was that very deliberate because of your love of sport? And, and was there anything there during your time as a student that kind of inspired you because it was Loughborough? Yes, well, I mean, I was very fortunate to get a scholarship to Loughborough. Um, I was on the uh, the British triathlon team myself, um, and so went and was part of the whole high performance program there. But probably my main um, observation, having having been there, was quite how untalented I was <laughs> compared to the the incredible sporting talent. If you, you rocked up in the gym or even in the in the students' bar afterwards, you were surrounded by internationals of almost every sport. It was a really incredible institution. And a lot of fun because you were surrounded by sporty folk. I mean, did you feel that you were in a kind of elite bubble a bit? Yeah, I mean, I certainly didn't have the normal student upbringing. I mean, when I say go to the student bar, I must have been there about five times in three years um, because <laughs> all we did was train all the time well, that we were surrounded. Well, well, uh, that's very similar to Roger, actually, for different reasons, actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, but so when you, Sam, when you say that, I mean, let, let's be honest. I think I've met a triathlete uh, once, maybe twice in my life. I've never felt so inferior ever in a, a situation of social interaction. It's, I mean, honestly, you're, you're some kind of like freak to do that. You know, like people talk about marathons and even there, but, but I mean, like triathlon is, is on a completely different level. You know, everybody must have realized you were that nutcase guy the times that you were like uh, in that bar. So for a start, I was a very average triathlete. I should call even that so, out, which is why. Even yeah. so. <laughs> I, I retired uh, yeah, at the bright <laughs> age of 21. But to your comment, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I'm involved in this organization now is the, the professional triathletes are truly superhuman, right? This is phenomenal specimens and very few people really realize quite how incredible their, their athleticism and ex is. Explain and I, that, Sam. What, when you say that, when you, they, you you talked about the superhuman before, give us an idea sure. to, to, to the layman like like me um, about what that superhuman, you know, what, what are the stats that make that so impressive? Yeah, let's, I'll, I'll, I'll do an, an easy number. So the, the more traditional um, or well-known length of triathlon now is the Ironman distance. So that's you know, two and a half mile swim, 112 mile bike ride, and then it finishes with a marathon. So all of that sounds sounds pretty painful. Yeah. Um, now to put it into context, the world's best athletes will run that marathon now in about two hours, 40 minutes, um, which, you know, anyone who can run three hours or even four hours for a marathon would agree that it's, that's pretty tough to do it. Having already raced yeah. the five, five and a half hours in extreme heat, it's just it's truly incredible athleticism. And in fact, we often refer to it as that triathlon, like to start right at the beginning, not to bore you with the details of the sport, but was actually formed as a bet ultimately between a bunch of Navy SEALs that were, uh, I'm slightly paraphrasing, but the Navy SEALs trying to answer the question of who is the fittest athlete? Was it a swimmer, a cyclist, or a runner? And so they put it all together and created triathlon. So, so we, we use the phrase to say, this is Darwinian evolution of sport. <laughs> yeah. Sam, so let, let me ask you, just... Um... Take me back to, to how you, as a young man, um, ended up being a triathlete. Because most young men growing up will have some form of sport, and it's normally rugby or cricket or football or tennis. Oh, yeah. or, it, 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 I'd love to know the, trend, the, the journey from playing football or rugby to, you know what, I'm going to go and do this ridiculously challenging thing. Seven hours. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so the, the real honest answer would be probably terrible hand-to-eye coordination and recognizing <laughs> that <laughs> I, was, uh, I was never going to do very well in any of those skill-based sports as they're more tra- traditionally known. Um, no, look, the, the, the simpler answer actually is, is back to, um, I know you often ask people like earliest sporting memory and, and mine isn't actually going to a football game or a rugby game. It's watching my father run half marathons as, as an amateur. And he did it for fun to raise money. I remember I was about five or six and this became a thing that he and his friends did every year. And, you know, they didn't run very quick, but they had a great time yeah. and they usually got pretty drunk afterwards. Um, and that became, you know, part of life to me. Uh, and I think he did it maybe 20 years in a row, our local half marathon. And before I knew it, at the age of 10, 12, 13, I was chasing him and, and you know, one thing led to the next. So, Sam, you've... We're going to talk a little bit about the PTO in, in quite some detail because we're, we're fascinated by both the investment structure and what cool. your plans are. And they're, 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 it's exciting to see any sport go through a, a, the, the process that I know you have. But before that, you, you take us from, from, as you say, average, we say not, but, but a pretty impressive <laughs> triathlete, yeah. to where you are yeah. today. What, were the, what was the journey of your own education in both finance and sport and putting this all together in a way that feel, made you feel confident at this point in 2020 last year that you were ready to do this. What was the, the, your story to get you acquainted to, to, to get to that point? Because it's a bold step that many in sport, frankly, don't have the balls to do. Wow, uh, that's that's quite a question. Um, well, the story is definitely the athletes, and we'll get onto that soon, right? Because that that's the real um, the real sort of special um, magic behind the PTO. But to tell you how I got there, yeah, look, it's been a relatively short but very serendipitous journey. So, like, like I mentioned, at, at twenty one, I realised I didn't have the talent to make any money from the sport, um, and frankly, that that was a mixture of two things, which which plays into where I am today. One, it was a lack of talent, just in general, as, as I've pointed out. Like there were there were young stars like Alistair Brownlee, who I'm sure you've all heard yep. of. Um, that were rising up. Alistair's maybe five years younger than me and at 14 was already beating me when I was at university. So, you know, I could see the writing on the wall. Um, but secondly, it was also recognizing there just wasn't the economics in the sport to, to make no. a living. Um, so I was, I'll try and remember it, maybe sixth or seventh in my last um, professional race and I got a check of $800. Um, and so I, I knew at that point, I remember vividly shaking the shaking my coach's hand and saying, thank you for a great journey. I need to go and do something else because how could I ever afford to, to live like this? Yeah. So um, maybe taking longer, longer than you need. So from st- stepping out of the sport, um, I was really fortunate to get involved in a startup quite early on. So I worked for a company called Active Network, yeah, which huge is... Huge success. Huge yeah, it's what, actually, I'm surprised you've heard of it, Roger. Yeah, mo- most people haven't. It's like one of those sort of secret companies that most people don't realize. It's like a billion dollar um, player Huge. in the space. We were the ticket master of of sport, essentially, or the ticket master of participation sport. So, handling the registration and ticketing process for um, let me see if I remember it because it's a while ago. Uh, I mean, 80,000 organizers. So absolutely huge. Like, like you said, we were yeah. more than a billion dollars uh, in, in public value when it went public. Um, and I had the really fun job of taking this American business overseas. So I was the first employee in Europe and then took the business to Asia, set up in Singapore, Sydney, China, which was just as a, as a young, um, young up and coming, uh, a yuppie, call it what it is. I had great, great fun. Well, I mean, that, that must have, we'll come on to it in a minute, but that's a crucial part of the story here because that experience with participation sports and what insight you got from those must have informed your vision for the PTO, which Absolutely. is yeah. a different model completely. Um, I, I find that fascinating. 
the, the, you know, it's not the case of you you packed up your your spikes and you're running in your cycle and 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 started this. You were involved in in what I would call one of the the, the key sport tech success stories of the last few years before you did this. Well, and it was realizing you're you're 100 right. It was realizing quite was what what was broken in the industry and yeah. needed to be fixed. And so if I yeah play through the story, um, the first first part was a fantastic time out in Asia, essentially running a startup because we were a little division of a very big company, and then had the uh, quite scary experience of being tapped on the shoulder and asked to come and be involved with the management buyout of the company. So we we took the company public under Vista Equity Partners, you know, a phenomenal firm in America that are doing amazing things. They're the um, the uh, majority owner of Stats Perform and a few other things that they're doing in the States at the moment. Um, so we took that business private, did the whole typical private equity restructure of, you know, rationalizing the business, exiting a lot yeah. of different divisions that weren't profitable. And then to call it what it is, flipped it after about three and a half, four years uh, in a trade sale, which was just an amazing experience to go through. Um, I think we, we it's not necessarily public, but, you know, north of a billion dollars made for the Vista in a couple of years to, uh, or th- three or four years time, which was more a reflection of their operational efficiency and, and recognizing what you can do with these big companies, because uh, it's not rocket science, but it's uh, there's some secret sauce that goes into that, as, as you guys know better than me. So it's your background. Um, and then more relevantly, perhaps from that, I then got involved directly in mass participation sports. So I, I went and worked for another private equity business that was a, a roll-up of participation sports. So we were buying marathons, triathlons, music festivals, mm-hmm. and putting them together. Um, and that's really where I came to the realization that most of the industry model was broken. It was heavily reliant that's on so sales. And uh, there was a lot more potential that the sport was missing. And that's kind of what led me here to the PTO. And, and before we get into that, so as a Welshman, how tell us the story of how you got involved with, I think you could certainly argue one of uh, Wales's richest men and most successful venture capitalists and authorities on venture capital, Sir Michael Morritt. How no, he, he is the main man. How, he is the main man, Giles, he, for, for, for the yeah. whole industry. <laughs> Mor- Moritz is, uh, he's Aristotle. You know, so let, let's not underplay this. You know, to have Michael Moritz um, by your vision is, it doesn't happen almost never, almost never. So so go on. Yeah, so sure. Sam, how on that. earth did that happen? <laughs> um, yeah, let me give you the, the short version of a long story. So yeah, like I said, I was, I was with Motive. We were investing in lots of different groups and the founding chairman, uh, a gentleman called Charles Adamo, who very much likes to stay in the background of this. He's an incredibly humble man. Um, he's doing this very from a social, social um, uh, purpose, which I'll explain when we get onto the sort of specifics of the PTO. He approached me and said, look, we're, we need to raise money to launch the PTO. Would we be interested in you know, raising about $10 million? At the time, as I mentioned, we were investing in participation sports. And so I love the model, but it didn't fit with what we were particularly investing in. Um, but I said to Charles, look, I really like this. This is kind of full circle to me back 10 years to the sport that I loved. Um, I'll leave what I'm doing. We will find investment. There is so much money in the space at the moment, which is you know what a, a lot of uh, your podcasts are so interesting is talking to all the different players, players in the space. Um, we'll find an investor and let's go and see what we can do. Um, did I predict at that time or know that we would be incredibly fortunate enough to find Sir Michael? Absolutely not. But uh, we were very, 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 very lucky that, you know, shortly later, um, we met with probably 10 or 15 different firms and very early on realized that uh, Mike, and it was Mike directly, actually, or Sir Michael, yeah, yeah. we call him Mike, um, that invested in us. We, uh, we went through this Sequoia pitch process and actually Mike went through that and said he'd like to do it directly through his, his personal investment oh, wow. fund, which is great. Sam, let me ask you, as you go through this, for someone who 
has a, you know, a natural affinity for sport from a participation standpoint. What, once you take that and you try and then put it through the lens of what has to be, let's face it, a hard-nosed business approach to this stuff, because if the numbers don't work, it, it doesn't work. How, how difficult is that to do? Because there must be points in time where you run up against these awful kind of Sophie's Choice type situations where it's a case of, well, you know, if I was a pure competitor, this wouldn't be what I might want to do. But as someone who's trying to make this into a successful business, this is the right way forward. How do you, how do you, when you get faced with that, deal with those sort of situations? Oh, that's a great question. So it's kind of kind of two parts. So if you look within just the, what I wouldn't just call triathlon industry, I'd actually call it sort of mass participation and, and endurance industry. We are absolutely going against the grain and doing things differently, um, which is challenging, right? And it's uh, a lot of people disagree with it. And so we go through, through all of the sort of various parts of, of a company that's trying to disrupt the market. That said, if you look at the core fundamentals of the business plan and what we're doing, we are just shamelessly copying far more success, or I won't say far more, previously successful companies that have done this multiple times in the space, whether, I mean, you look at basically every professional sport um, over the last 10 or 20 years has been through a journey that's similar to the one we hope to take triathlon on with the PTO. So we get the huge benefit of standing on the shoulders of far more experienced um, people that have been through or people, you know, industries that have already been through the pitfalls of, of doing this, if, if that answers your question. No, it, it does. Um, and it, it kind of like the, 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 the thing that's so much fun to have you on here for me is that um, you're a wonderful example of everything that we talk about in theory, about new money coming in, backing something and, 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 and a new idea. And we get the chance here to kind of like shoot the breeze with you um, looking at a sport because it's a full sport and, and how it gets assessed by in this case, VC venture. Uh, you talked to a little about private equity, and you know we, that's different. So, so we get the chance here to kind of like chat with you about how a sport goes through the Silicon Valley playbook. You know, you said you went through the Sequoia thing. That's that's Silicon Valley. That's Sand Hill Road. That that that's not easy. It's hard. So. Um, what I'd like to, to do, and, and this is going to be a little bit of a conversation, it's not like the classic, um, you know, in the room and there's a whole lot of young anal analysts scoring points off each other, trying to trying to ask the, the, the better question than their colleague. Yep. Not going to, I'm not going to do that, Sam, but um, here's what I'd like to do. I, I, I look at the PTO and it ticks so many of the boxes that we talk about in this show. Uh, it's a challenger league. Uh, that sees that the existing governance and governing body is a bit sleepy, a bit slow, doesn't have the right model. And you're going to say, well, tell you what, they're not going to change. I'm going to do it myself. We love that on this on this show. We, we, we talk a lot about lacrosse. We talk about the, the International Swimming League. So um, that's a great start. The second theme that we talk about a lot is the disintermediation between the, the fan and the athlete, and if you can get them closer together, uh, that's going mm -hmm. to work better. And, and you know, your athlete focus, the athletes are, are, are going to get most of the rewards from this. So that's a big tick. You've got an amazing team. You know, um, I'm not just talking about Sir Michael or, or Charles, uh, the new people you've brought on, an amazing, amazing team. Next thing I think you've got is you've got a clear understanding of the new ways of content 
and how they have to be, again, like lacrosse, like you say, following the other ones, snappier, you know, better production. Uh, it doesn't need to look sleepy. Storytelling, all of that. You, you, that's all clear from everything you do. Here's the one I really like. Um, my phrase, I think I want to try and copy it. This is uh, sport polarizes into Hollywood and uh, art house. You've taken a sport that has been traditionally art house run by the participants in a kind of like amateur way for their own benefit, paying to, to, to play as it were. Most of the revenues came from their uh, entrance fees. And you're saying mm -hmm. we can do better. This is a Hollywood version of the sport and we're going to deliver it and it's going to be called the PTO. So I love that. And then we've got Sir Michael. So I'm walking in as a potential investor to you and I'm predisposed to say yes. There's so many things here, right? So he, he, here's a couple of the things that I would put to you, hoping that you could say to me, don't worry, Roger, we've got this covered. Here's the first one. Sure, good. Yeah, great. Product's too long. Uh, with all the will in the world, uh, I looked at your highlights that's on the website of Daytona, and that was a 45 minute video. Great production values, done really well, but geez, that's long. I mean, uh, UFC, what's the average bout there? It's, what, two or three minutes, in and out, bang, bang, bang. Colin McGregor's on the microphone afterwards, slagging off the guy's beat. That's great. You've got to, you've got to do it, um, and, and, and I know you've got the, the, the shorter version now, but it's still awful long. That's my first one. Second one, there's not a lot of these, because like I say, I think you've okay. nearly got... Yeah. The, the second one is this. Um, your governing bodies is the usual mess it is in sport. Very unclear who's running this, who's who can give you a hard time, who's going to put a spoke in your wheels, um, the Olympics, not the Olympics, uh, jealousies, all of that, that would make me worried. Um, the third one is competition. It's always difficult to invest in a business where you've got a couple of incumbents that are going to give you a hard time and they're relatively well funded. Uh, Iron Man, obviously, since they've been sold, is absolutely that. They don't like you. They probably uh, seriously don't like you. Um, there's other smaller um, competitors like Spartan that is not the same, but it's the whole participation event. Let's do things like that. And the last one, which is really a, an open goal for you to talk about your media strategy, um, linked a little bit to the length of the product. Um, do you think this will ever have a mass market or do you have to go really niche, really direct to consumer with a, a media channel and really go for the ARPU play? And that would be it, Sam. Okay, just just that. Is are you sure? <laughs> well, I've um, only okay, got 20 see. minutes on Sandhill Road. I've got, to, I've got to get them out quick. So I think uh, if I could, I'm almost going to answer your second question first, because I think it's kind of how a lot of, well, one of the first questions I found, not just the PTO, but previously when you're involved with talking to investors, the fundamental question is, what is your reason to exist? Right. So like, why should anyone care? Like, why, why do you exist in the world? And what is the value that, that you bring? Um, and I've got a short answer for, for how the PTO um, or our reason for existing. And, it, and it's quite a nuanced one, which explains a lot of what we do. So we really have two reasons for existing. One is a philosophical reason and one is a commercial one. The philosophical reason is that professional triathletes, those superhumans we were talking about at the beginning of, of the podcast, do not get their fair share of the economics in the space. It's just as simple as that. Um, there have been some numbers calculated recently that, you know, at the low end, just triathlon itself is a $3 billion industry, right? So that's, you know, not huge, but by no means small. 
And yet the majority of professional triathletes can't make ends meet, right? So if yeah. you go off the top one, two or three, you just can't even afford to fly to the races, let alone do them. Um, and that's to my comment about, about Charles getting involved. He has been involved in this as, as to fix that, what he calls a social wrong. Um, now, not necessarily criticism of triathlon. It's like that. This is just the natural evolution of sports. All professional yes. sports were like this. Yes. And you guys know this so much better than me, right? You can go back to the 60s with golf, pre-Mark McCormack, tennis, pre-the ATP in the 80s and the breakaway in the US Open. Darts did it with the PDC and matchroom. Like it's happened in so many different sports. And so we're just following the footsteps, as I said earlier, of of established players of what we call the, the path to athlete self-determination. Um, so that's our sort of core philosophical reason to exist. And it plays into like the, how the relationships with the NGBs go to your, to your question. That's why I'm sort of answering it in a, in a roundabout way. Um, secondly, why did Mike get involved? Uh, it's the commercial side, right? So he's not got, got involved as a philosophical venture. This is not one of his many philanthropic things. He's a, one of the major donors to Oxford University and lots of other things, but we don't fit in that bucket for him. We sit in his commercial, commercial bucket. And the reason for that, and I've done a little bit of work with Giles on this, so he, he knows it very well, is that triathlon is an absolutely sleeping giant in terms of commercial value because of the value of the participants that do the sport. So to give you some, some numbers, because I never like to talk about numbers on this podcast, um, the average household income of a triathlete, a uh, long distance triathlete in North America, I should say, is $220,000. Um, that compares to golf is about ninety to ninety-five thousand dollars. So we're indexing two and a half times larger than golf, which has traditionally been called the sport yep. of the executive, right? Yep. And if I'm um, Goldman Sachs or Allianz or Standard Life Aberdeen, in fact, I can tell you the numbers. In 2019, 1.6 billion dollars was spent by brands like that in golf to reach those consumers. Triathlon has got a more valuable market. It's smaller for sure, but it's a more valuable market. And yet less than $50 million was spent in triathlon sponsorship in 2019. So there's a massive disparity there, which is essentially down to the, to the, how to, how, what was the thesis of investing with Mike? It was down to that, right? There's an arbitrage opportunity here between the money that's in the space, but the value, value of the audience. Um, and so that's our, our commercial. Now, what plays into your first question, I'm kind of trying, trying to answer your questions from multiple points. Um, why does that arbitrage opportunity exist? Because of the lack of TV product in the space, right? So it doesn't matter how valuable your audience is. If it's so fragmented that a marketer can't reach them, it has no value. And so that's why we raised money was to come and create a, I don't want to use the word television, actually, I'll use the word broadcast. Yeah, sure. um, product that allows us to consolidate the attention of all those really high value consumers that we can ultimately serve up and monetize, whether that's through, you know, rights, commercial rights as in TV rights, whether it's sponsorship, et cetera, et cetera. So those are kind of our reasons for existing. And that's why I'm trying to think how I relate that back to your question on the NGBs. Um, that's why we're, we're coming to the space. We sort of recognize there's this um, dual reason. It's that the athletes aren't being, aren't getting their fair share. And secondly, the sport isn't getting its fair share. And so we need to invest to change that. Sam, I'll let my colleagues come in in a second. Just one question. I'll let my colleagues go in. Really great um, example of, you know, total addressable market should be really big. It's not been addressed. That's that's the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, if you will. And, and, and you know, VC is about what they call product market fit to, to, to bridge to get to the pot of gold. My concern, only one concern is, Whilst you've got the audience, whilst they're rich, whilst there's money there, I'm not sure that there is a product market fit for a four-hour event. That's that's my major problem. 
And that is, you just summed it up in a sentence, what, why we went to venture capitalists rather than more established um, sports investment funds. So actually, to give you a bit of background, the PTO took three and a half, four years to get going because initially, um, we, prior to me, approached broadcasters and said, look at this amazing market, look at this amazing opportunity. And all the broadcasters turned around and said, four hours, five hours, we can't make that interesting. And so what we had to do is instead go to venture capitalists who are used to making, frankly, disruptive bets and saying, yes, you know, all of the fundamentals aren't naturally put together yet, but that's why it's an opportunity. We will take the risk to see whether we can make that work. Um, and so you're, you're 100% right. Like that, that's absolutely the journey we're on right now. Now that said, again, we're just leveraging the experience of so many other sports that make this interesting, right? Whether it's golf, whether it's NASCAR, whether it's Formula One, we were incredibly fortunate, as, as you probably know, to bring on board. In fact, someone that Giles introduced me to. So that shows the power of the podcast. Um, uh, Martin Turner, who ran uh, Formula One for Sky. Saw that. And saw he's that. used to, you know, far longer broadcasts, um, but it's about using narrative, profile building, technology, graphics to bring what's ultimately a boring product and turn it into an exciting piece of, uh, of media to, to consume. Um, and that's really the journey we've got to go on. Um, for sure, it's not a, not a done deal straight out of the box, but that's why we take the investment to bring on the talent to try and change it. Sam, quick question. I know that you've looked at other sports like tennis and golf and looked at their, um, the way the ATP and the PGA Tour and the European Tour who have historically run sport in a similar fashion. W what were the caveats and I know that, in fact, some of the people you've got involved are, are involved from that world as well. Were there elements of their model that you were nervous about as you were creating PTO? Because it's not all um, honey, honey and milk in, in, in golf and tennis either. So, so in answering that question, actually, you allow me to bring up something that I, I've been foolish to forget when, when talking about Mike, is that our actual investment structure is completely unique to my, to my knowledge in sport. So what we've set up is essentially complete alignment between the athletes and investors in that we are set up just like the PGA Tour. We are a non, uh, we're a non-profit, we're a non-profit membership association, similar to the ATP, but obviously there's involvement there from the tournament. So it's a little bit more, it's a little bit more difficult. But if you consider us as like the PGA Tour, a non-profit membership organization, and then we took our commercial rights, like so many companies, sorry, like so many sports rights holders have had to do in COVID because they've suddenly found themselves, you know, without any funding. We took the commercial rights and set them up in a separate entity, which Mike's then invested in. And what that means is that we've got, and it's 50-50, it's straight down the line. Mike owns 50% of that through Crankstart. The athletes own 50% through the nonprofit. And in theory, that should allow for complete alignment between talent and capital, which is... To you, I'm going to quote Mike. It's the mainstay of Silicon Valley, and yet hasn't been in, involved in sports yet, which uh, we find very that. surprising. But it potentially that. Um, that was the lesson: was to how do you look at the structure? And then, yes, we brought on people like Chris Commode, who is the uh, who is the, obviously the head of the ATP, to really help with the athlete governance in particular, because one of the challenges as a athlete owned body, there are always athletes that are on the way up. And there are athletes that are on the way down, right? It's the natural evolution of, of a sports career. And so having people like Chris to guide us through that has been in, invaluable. Sam, I was really interested to, to see what you guys did with Daytona last year. Um, and I'll, I, I won't preempt that. I'll get you to explain to people because I'm, I'm interested in the mindset behind it. Because when I look at the ingredient, you know, Roger's point, I think, is extremely well made. And, and that, that length of time... Uh, I can understand why that's problematic. But on the other, on the flip side of that, what you have, essentially every single competitor in any of these events will have a remarkable story because the, these guys are people who've overcome all kinds of things. Even if it's just 
the amount of effort that you have to do to train to get to this level. You know, there, these will be struggles and there'll be fantastic stories with every athlete. So I, I can see where in, in this there is the, the enormous potential to tap into what Roger's been talking about since the birth of this podcast, this, this idea of creating narratives and, and mini stories within the story to, to engage viewers. Shoulder so content, just, yeah. Yeah, just, just talk us through the thought process, how you put Daytona together in that format what it was designed to do and, and, and how well that worked with, with, and resonated with the audience. Absolutely. And maybe I can preface it that Daytona was actually a very fortunate reaction to COVID-19. So it was not originally part of our business plan. And it's maybe a better answer for Roger's question earlier on how do you make this exciting is that it's not just a case of get a lot of cameras and a lot of money and, and see whether we can make it work. Right. It's also you've got the format of the competition itself, right? Which is which is obvious, I, I know. But um, our reformatting of the sport was our, our major event, which is the Collins Cup, which hasn't happened yet because of COVID. We planned on it last year. The Collins Cup, is, as you may know, because you've have seen, oh, hopefully seen, we've been marketing it yeah. a little bit. Yeah, looks a, great. It's a reformatting, right? So it's taking the Ryder Cup, it's looking at jingoistic, nationalistic behavior of US versus Europe versus uh, internationals that you don't even really need to care about triathlon to like what that event is about. Because if you're in America, you want to beat the Europeans. And if you're a European, you want to beat the um, beat the Americans. And so that's sort of one example of how you take the core of triathlon, but look at it in a different way to serve up more existing, uh, more exciting content, I should say. Now, that said, COVID hit, not what we expected. We scrambled around and thought, look, if there's one place, could we put on an event um, in the pandemic? And we struck a partnership with uh, the folks at Daytona International Speedway, so the family that own NASCAR, um, to put on an event within a fixed venue. And so what was unique about that was we were concerned, obviously, with I mean, all of the bubbles, and bubble is a loose phrase, obviously, when you're describing COVID structures at the moment, because they don't tend to actually be bubbles. But if we could put on a long distance event within a COVID bubble, and that's what we did. So we put on a 100-kilometer distance race, so roughly three hours for the men, three hours for the women, all within Daytona International Speedway. Um, and the exciting thing about that for us was it was a proof of concept that was very much a, a, about allowing the athletes to race in a different format, right? So going round and round is obviously far easier to film these things when you've got fixed cameras and, yeah. and all those kind of things. But what was most encouraging was not so much the reaction of the athletes, but that with very little marketing, we achieved close to a million um, viewership on our on our main linear partners, and we had even more encouraging for perhaps five hundred thousand people coming to our digital platform. Um, of which, when I, I say zero marketing, I mean literally like a few weeks of sort of last minute. Hey, this is going to be on. Please come and watch. And we kind of validated straight out of the gate that there is a pent up demand for this, which was which was very encouraging from a business plan, and certainly to tell Mike, Sam. Uh... Uh, th this is the real pump jack question, uh, not not the the first one. This is the real one. Um, you've got an audience that are really really rich. You know, it was two hundred twenty thousand, whatever it is. Um, you your play must be all about ARPU. You must, in some form or another, be on a sub model subscription model um, around an owned and uh, owned and operated uh, platform where you want to capture as much of their spend as possible, whether it's how they travel to events, the hotels, uh, uh, merchandise, everything like that. You need to know these people really, really well to be able to do that. Um, most sports, uh, in my experience, um, don't. They kind of think they do. 
But when your plate is so very much focused about around a really tight but incredibly rich fan base, that must be your real prerogative. And do you feel you've got the skills to really play that game? Because the subscription game, uh, churn management, retention, stickiness, it's really tough. You know, very, very few people manage to do it. It's incredibly difficult. And I think people underplay how easy it is. There's lots of talk at the moment about D to C and it's the new model for sport and all the rest, but uh, strategy and execution are very different things, right? I mean, I, I was told that from my first job, I think, was that you know that you could tell everyone your strategy because your ability to execute on it is the most important thing. Um, and I absolutely believe in that. And I think uh, people underplay how difficult it is. Uh, um, blunt or, or more direct answer to your question. Yeah, probably look at look at not necessarily Mike's experience, but where Mike has invested before. Right. So he's he's one of the largest investors in Strava, which has you know seventy million signed up consumers that they've begun to monetize this year. And indeed, there's almost no consumer tech business that you can't mention that's sort of gone, gone that path. Um, in terms of ourselves and directly over the next few years, look, one of the, um, I think is the right way to put it, uh, one of our benefits of launching now, and it's a really strong benefit that I think most people don't quite notice, is that we don't have legacy incumbent systems to figure out and try and get on top of, which is, I mean, you talk about Pumjack and the various players in the space, they're having to solve really difficult problems for large rights holders that have got, yes, lots of data, but it's in 50 different data sets. You can't, you can't make head nor tail of it. And, you know, exactly. And I, I lived through this actually at, at Active and that we acquired over, a, again, not to bore, bore you with the point, over a seven-year period, we acquired 34 different companies, rationalized that down into four data sets over a five-year period to be able to get value out of it. It was incredibly painful to do. Um, the end result was incredibly lucrative, right? Incredibly lucrative. We were making um, very large amounts of money out of that data. But um, the process that you have to go through to do it, uh, I think people don't realize quite how complicated it is. So maybe I'm being a politician to answer the, answer the question by not doing it no, directly. No, it's true. It's true. Yes is the answer, I suppose. Is, that, look, is there a direct-to-consumer play here? 100%. Um, do you need to invest in both the people and the companies like a pump jack to be able to do that? Yes, for that too. And then thirdly, we're quite fortunate, I think, in the space in that the... Um, the cost of doing this is dropping so fast, right? It used to be that spinning up uh, CDPs and all these kind of things were so expensive. It's now becoming largely, I don't want to use the commodi word commoditized because that would be unfair, but it's becoming far more addressable to even small yeah, groups like us. Sam, you, you talked about um, Daytona and, and many congratulations for, <laughs> I remember speaking to you about six weeks before, four weeks before, two weeks before, and your ability to keep calm when you know, res responding through COVID and putting something on through COVID, not many people could do. So big kudos to you there. And clearly, <clears throat> COVID is not over yet. And none of us know what a, a world, a post-COVID world, I'm not even sure we'll ever be in a post-COVID world. How do you, and, and when do you start planning for the future in the rest of 21 and 22? And how has COVID you know, it's affected everything, of course, but how has it changed the plans where you've shown that you can be very fluid with making decisions, but also keeping to a, a three to five year script as you need to do? Give us some insight there. Yeah, I mean, the three to five year script almost gets thrown out out of the, the window straight away, right? It's almost impossible to do um, even six months planning uh, when, the, when the, the parameters keep changing. We're very fortunate in that that's kind of the VC 
world they're used to it. Uh, this is again the difference between private equity and VC, where you're talking small, calculated bets on things you're really not sure what's going to happen in the next three or four months. Whereas private equity is more, you know, leveraging up and and operational efficiency or financial efficiency. Um, very different uh, kind of kettle of fish. So we're very fortunate in that case. Um, more specifically, over the next uh, next year or two, we've done two things. One, we've we've slowed down slightly the number of events we'll launch. So our, our plan is to grow to a handful, and it literally is a handful. It's five big budget events. So we want to own the equivalent of the majors within endurance sports, right? So we'll have the US Open, the European, the Asian, um, and, and one other, um, and then the Collins Cup that will rotate between them. We'll probably slow that down a little bit just because, not because of our own operational need, but because governments aren't necessarily ready to welcome events back in some sectors. Some absolutely are. And we're having great conversations with different regions that are saying, we love this. We love the value of the market. We want to have your events, particularly because our model, um, again, uh, unlike most sports, we don't believe in the traveling circus of events just coming and going and coming to a community and, and largely sucking money out, frankly, rather than bringing it in. We want, when we found the US Open, we will find a venue in America that wants to have this event forever. And we want to sort of basically replicate the Wimbledon and the Flushing Meadows and the Victoria Park in Melbourne model where tennis will never leave Melbourne, right? It's, it's just integral to the culture there. And we want to try and do the same thing with triathlon and endurance sports. And I think that's another sort of different model that we're, we're bringing. We've looked at what's worked in some sports and what hasn't. So uh, yeah, long answer to your question, Giles, slowing down a little bit on that, but then actually speeding up in another area, which is the content creation, which, you know, Grant, you were asking before, yeah. and we, we kind of jumped over it as we talked about Daytona. There are so many incredible stories in this sport, because as we've said earlier, these, these athletes are truly superhuman. And often, often it takes quite a superhuman endeavor to have got there. And so one of the, mo- the more well-known to talk to is, is a gentleman up in Canada called Lionel Sanders. He was very open that he was a cocaine addict like six or seven years ago and to the point of nearly committing suicide. And he used triathlon to not only pull himself out, but now making a living from the sport. It's an incredible story. It's, it's, it's pure Hollywood stuff. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, working with groups like our, our own internal marketing team, I, I hired a um, or recruited a director of content straight out of UFC, who's been fantastic at sort of building rivalries. We hired a CMO recently who came from Formula E and CLGP. So again, sports businesses that absolutely recognize the value in content creation and telling the stories of the athletes. Because when the story, when the athletes are well-known, sports grow and it's simple and fundamental and simple. it's happening. Yep. Right? It, there's, there's no exception, right? Whether it's basketball off the back of Michael Jordan, if it's golf from Arnold Palmer and then Tiger Woods and, and uh, tennis. I mean, we could talk about it for ages, right? And so for us, again, back to the original sort of why invest in this um, space, we think it's pretty simple, right? Build up the profiles of incredible athletes and the audience will grow a, a, as a result. And, and our view is that we can consolidate that through then those, those major events. Sam, you know, as, as you alluded to there, obviously COVID has 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 put a spanner in so many works um, and obviously decimated even the most well thought out business plans right across the, the sporting world, let alone the business world. But with, with kind of COVID hopefully subsiding um, or beginning to yep. subside now, we still have no real visibility on it, but you have to think now with the vaccine rolling out that, that a year from now, things will hopefully be uh, uh, certainly on, on well on their way back to normal. So given that, uh, and let's take that as a year time. In two years' time, paint me a picture of of what the success of the PTO looks like at that point in time. What 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 are your benchmarks for success? So I think two things actually on the on the COVID 
conversation which are interesting that have benefited sport and particularly the PTO, maybe in the short and the long term. One, the flood of institutional money into this space is just phenomenal to see, right? And I know you guys cover this. You're one of the best places to get it covered, actually. I really enjoy listening to the podcast of, of people talking about it. But it's been remarkable even in the last month or two to see institutional money flow in. And, and the benefit of that is not just cash. It's going to be expertise, ultimately, that it elevates and allows them to be more, more professional, right? Because it's a little bit of a dusty old space in some sectors. I should say that with a pause, right? It's not all dusty, but there's there's a fair bit of it and it needed maybe some new approaches. So I think that's been a really good benefit of, of COVID. The second one, which is more relevant to the PTO than most, is that because everyone's been locked down or many people have been locked down, there has been a huge surge, particularly in running and cycling, you know, two very core parts of our of our sport. To um, let me give you a number. So Octagon, the sports agency, came out last week saying that there have been 7 million new runners created in North America over the last six months. Um, I mean, 7 million is a huge yeah. amount of people. If I'm ultimately trying to get 10 or 20,000 people to come to an event to pay and 7 million have just come into the market, right? It's an incredibly positive environment to be, be operating in. Um, so I think those are the slight tangent to your question on, on COVID, yeah. sort of the positive things that have come out of the pandemic. Looking ahead to two years, maybe three years, we would be, my hope if everything goes to plan is, yeah, we're established with those four or five big budget events. We've got uh, a calendar that allows professional athletes to make a decent return from the incredible efforts they put into the space. And so our commitment, as to give you context, is uh, every one of our events will have an, at least a million dollar prize purse. The average price purse in an Ironman is fifty thousand yeah. dollars, just to give the context yeah. of the variant. Right. So it, it does uh, just to you know to point out the distinctions. Um, give them allows- a kick in. They, they kick you. Give them a kick in. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's, it's not so much a kick, it's more that we look at the space, obviously, and this kind of answers your, your third question earlier, your third point, right, was about competition. Um, Ironman have a fantastic business model. They're making an awful lot of money, which justified the the, the purchase price that Advance obviously invested in, in, in them, you know, upwards of $700 million. Um, they're making a lot of profit. We don't necessarily think it's the right model for the sport, and we think they've left a lot on the table because they have created a phenomenal grassroots participation-based business. And look at every sport that has real value. It's driven by media. It's driven by eyeballs. It's yeah, something far bigger, the Hollywood factor. And so um, it's not necessarily criticism of them. It's just a reflection of the, hey, look, that, that's the market. It's the classic innovators dilemma um, that the Correct. big company doesn't recognize the potential. Sam, I, I, I want to take us back to Sandhill Road for a little bit more, a moment now. Um, so uh, you raised, what was it, nine million? Uh, nine million uh, right off the bat. That's a Series A funding. That that's Series A size. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, um, given COVID, especially, let's let's not make any bones about it. I'd be surprised if your runway didn't mean you had to raise again relatively quickly. I'm not going to ask you what your runway is. It's, it's never a nice question. Um. So you in in the sil in the Silicon Valley playbook, you're on Series B. Are you going to treat it as a Series B with valuation and, and look for other VC funds? Or is Sir Michael going to take this round as well? So that's a really fun conversation, and very particularly poignant at the moment, actually. So um, we actually raised 12 and a half, not nine, but it's not public. Sorry. I don't mind sharing it. But no, no, it's no problem at all. Um, it was a little bit more money. And you're right. In the, I would say, in the slightly older way of looking at things, that was definitely a Series A. Nowadays, the money that's flowing through venture capital at the moment, like Series A, Series Bs, the, you almost can't put numbers on them, right? They're phenomenal, some of the, the amounts that have been put in. But that's also based on the TAM and the opportunity, right? So it's, it's kind yeah. of interesting to see how things have developed. I mean, I have 
friends who've raised money for businesses recently, a, a few years ago, who did Series A's of $1 million, and now people are yeah. doing 15 million. It's just remarkable. Um, that said, maybe a, a, a more direct answer to your question is, would, would Mike or Sir Michael expect to have other people on the cap table as we go through the journey? That's kind of the Silicon Valley model, right? They, yeah, the Sequoia very rarely is the only company. In fact, they like to have other other people on the cap table, um, particularly if they have strategic value. And so, where I could see things going, and we've had some of these early conversations. We're not certainly not in the market for fundraising, but we always talk to people because it's interesting. Um, is the trend towards not necessarily institutional money, but um, agencies and broadcasters to invest directly in? properties. And so one of the really good examples being um, Discovery and Liberty Global investing in Formula E. And I think they've made a huge return on that over the last few years. Um, more recently, I saw Infront have invested in Squash. IMG are doing things with table tennis. Obviously, IMG even announcing earlier today, they're going back to the market. I saw that just before yeah, we did. had yeah. the, uh, so on did the, I. The, yeah. the podcast. And so I think it's really interesting how agencies and, you know, and above agencies, you could list under the groups like Bruin that are beginning to roll up that space. Um, it's a very interesting space at the moment, right, for, for investment. But yes, look, maybe more directly to your, to your question, I would have thought at some point we would bring other investors onto the cap table, not necessarily because of financial need, but because it makes strategic sense to do so, right? It, it allows us to open doors and go to places which we can't do independently. Great. Um, okay. If my colleagues don't have anything, I've got one last one, just, um, um, we can, maybe we won't use it, but, um, I think it's an interesting one. We, we've spoken a lot in the last couple of podcasts about the black swan event of certain sports that all of a sudden can come and bite you. And it's the D word. Cycling, swimming, and running are three sports that have had their issues with that. Triathlon has never, ever been tainted by that. And maybe that's because there ain't any money in it. What happens when all of a sudden they're running for a million dollars? Are they going to start uh, thinking about the pharmacy? Um, you know what? I didn't think that you would bring that up, but it's a really interesting point to talk through. Uh, I mean, I think I delicately use my my words. Um, it's inevitable when more money flows into a sport that there will be more people will seek methods to you know gain from that, right? Whether that's directly um, breaking rules or whether it's doping. Um, triathlon doesn't have the doping problem that other sports have. It doesn't have also doesn't have the economics to justify it. Uh, we've just got to stay ahead of it in terms of governance structure. We're quite unique in that, obviously we are very unique in that the athletes own this. And so we have an athlete committee that's an anti-doping committee. That's, that's looking for the very aging process. And to give you a good example in Daytona, actually, um, I can't remember the specifics, but we, uh, we essentially used a new, new technology. We tested every single athlete, right? So instead of, sort of the approach afterwards where you pick like five people out of a hat and the three winners and they get tested, our athletes chose to test every single person who came because it's incredibly important for, their, um, for them that it's a clean sport, obviously, it's their, their own um, integrity. So will it become a bigger issue as we get bigger? Almost definitely. Um, will we again, hopefully be able to leverage the, the far bigger infrastructure in other sports that are kind of dealing with the problem? I hope so, because otherwise that would be, be a real challenge to go through. Sam, you've um, been a fascinating guest for us. You've alluded to earlier that we've had some fairly big hitting investor types um, on the big interview, um, which has been fascinating as we are in this time right now where private equity is circling around sports and whether it's George Pine, whether it's the guys from Redbud or whoever it may be. I think what's been fascinating hearing from from you directly is rather like you were saying about 
you know, there's a strategy and then there's execution. You're the guy who's entrusted with the execution as well as the strategy um, and to deliver. And I think from from the three of us, I think this has been a, a fascinating interview to, to listen to someone who is absolutely involved at the, the sharp end of a sports investment of a not a new sport, but of a new construct. So as I said to you earlier, I think I was enormously impressed by frankly, the balls to get on and do Daytona um, at a time when <laughs> yeah. it could easily, it would have been easier not to, frankly. Yeah, it was but, pretty stressful. But, yeah. but you yeah. didn't. And then you got to Christmas and I hope you got some sleep. Um, and with whatever 2021 um, holds for, for all of us, in fact, but also to the sports industry in 22 and beyond, I think you've answered, I mean, to answer Roger's questions and just swat him away like a fly <laughs> is um, yeah. is not an easy task because he, he does, like to, he does yeah. like to get his teeth in. And so I think I'm going to say from, from, from all of us, are you not entertained, not only thank you for coming on the show, but also the very, very best of luck because it's going to be a really exciting journey. And, and I think we're all right behind you, providing none of us are asked to take part in any of your events. Yeah, absolutely. A, a long way behind you in, in that circumstances. <laughs> well, no, no, you, Sam, Sam I, would just, I would just add to that. Um, you are a little bit the, the best, the very best, maybe unique example of everything that, that certainly I hope for for the sports industry. Um, everything I said, you know, at the start of the interview about what you represent, uh, I, I think you've got a difficult challenge to, for that bridge, you know, uh, for for the length of the the, the length of the, the the product. When you know, there's always talk about people selling the fourth quarter in basketball, all that kind of stuff. I think mm -hmm. it's going to be difficult. Um, but God, am I rooting for you? Because if you pull this off, the sports industry will never be the same again. Wow, that's quite the statement. Well, look, I I greatly appreciate it, and it's um. I feel frankly honored to be in the situation that I'm in, right? I'm representing, I say representing loosely, um, incredible superhuman athletes. Um, we have an incredible market. It's full of very, very high value customers that want this. We've just got to figure out the steps to link the two together, um, which in theory should be easy, right? But uh, as you said, it, <laughs> well, come back. The, uh, the execution is what matters. Come back and talk to us in a year and let, tell us how you're getting on because we'd love yeah, to have you back. I would love to. Thank you very I'd love much. To, and I'll enjoy listening to the podcast in the meantime. <laughs> Fantastic. Sam, thanks so much. Thank you, sir. I learned a lot. Thank you, Sam. So. An absolute delight. Pleasure. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, guys. Cheers. Bye bye. Ah, what a what an enjoyable hour, gentlemen. That was that was really, really interesting. And uh, I think you're right, Sam did a just a fantastic job with that, I thought. Well, what I think is interesting, I, I've got to know Sam pretty well over over the last year or so, is that Clearly, he's a nutter because he was a triathlete, and they're all nutters in my book. Um, but he has an energy um, about him that you can see is also trans sort of transposes into his business uh, and his bravery to, to to go for this and the sheer guts of this. And um, as I said in, earlier in my questioning, there weren't many um, sports that were running into the COVID crisis by insisting that they could put something on most were going quiet. Yeah. And I think that says an awful lot about triathlon as a sport. And I, I think they've got, it's as you say, Roger, it's a challenging road ahead. But my goodness, they've got a hell of a cast list and uh, a yeah. backup staff to, 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 to give them every chance of success. Yeah. Yeah. No, he, I think he, he also dispatched the Mitchell from his trouser leg with consummate ease as well, which is always uh, an impressive thing to watch. Yeah, but the questions were good. You've got to give me credit. 
Could, no, 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 yeah. no. It's great. It's great. I, and I, 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 you know, I, I, lesser men would have crumbled, Roger. But I, obviously, <laughs> you've met your match in a triathlete. <laughs> we now know. We now know. Well, look, gentlemen, as always, um, a, a, a fascinating uh, chance to sit and talk about this stuff. Um, all that remains is to is to thank our guest Sam Radoff um, for for spending that hour with us. It really was uh, hugely enlightening. To thank you for listening to us. Um, please do uh, take a moment to rate and review us in the iTunes store. We would really appreciate that. And if you're not already following us on Twitter, then why not give it a go? You'll find us at EntertainedR. That's the word, A-R-E. You'll find me on Twitter at T-T-M-Y-G-H. You'll find me, Giles Morgan, at GilesMorgan71. And you'll find myself at RPM Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. Gentlemen, until next time. Avanti. Avanti, avanti, avanti. tutti. Ciao, ciao. Buonanotte. <laughs> <laughs>